You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopo is with me as always. And before we dive into the show, this mailbag edition where you submit the best questions, we take them and we provide our answers, I want to remind you guys right now that you can sign up for a VIP membership and save some money. If you want to go the month-to-month route, it's just $1 right now for your first month, excuse me, and then $9.95 thereafter that. Or if you're prepared and you're okay doing the annual membership, you could be billed a one-time bill of $75.18 but save over $3 per month opposed to the month-to-month price. Inside scoop on the Oregon Ducks, expert analysis and opinion. Read all the content across the 24-7 Sports Network. Access to Duck insiders like Eric, Kevin Wade, our coworker, and on, and myself. And you get exclusive recruiting coverage. All right, Eric, I, I teased it at the top. It's the mailbag edition. We've got six really good questions. I feel like a a lot of recruiting stuff too. And I think we're starting to gravitate towards that kind of coming into a a bigger focus from our own writing, our our own coverage, and also kind of Oregon's fan bases, their, their focus as well. That's true. And I know I joked with it after last week's mailbag that it was like basically a Matt Prem special because I think five out of the six questions or four out of the six were, were football recruiting questions. And we've got about half the show today will also be on that. It makes sense in terms of like how much can you actually talk about a season that we don't know if it's going to happen, but we can at least say that there will be a recruiting class put together in some shape or form. So I guess I get that part of it. We're going to start out with an actual football question. So here we go. Here, we're starting with some real football talk from at Windy Tree 503. Is it wrong to think Oregon can hang with Ohio State? Aside from analyzing what Kate Brown said last week, I've been following Ohio State storylines, and it seems no one would give Oregon a shot to stay within two touchdowns. Am I too hopeful? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. And I should say, I think all but one of the questions on today's show is use the hashtag. So keep doing that, folks. It makes it a lot easier for us to find your questions and answer them on the show. Um, in terms of the question, I think it's a good one. I don't know if you've really taken a whole lot of time so far to, to analyze that game with the Buckeyes, other than to say, I know last week, uh, a couple of times, that it's possible that there are going to be either no fans or significantly fewer fans if the game is played in September as planned. I don't think it's crazy at all to think Oregon can stay within two touchdowns. I don't think it's crazy at all to think Oregon can be really competitive in this game. I'm still pretty cautious to say Oregon can win this game for a variety of reasons. Um, Let's start with the good. Obviously, Oregon has a very talented defense. It's probably going to be one of the best defenses Ohio State faces all season. You know, you look at the Big Ten, they have strong defenses like Wisconsin, Michigan State, Penn State, even Michigan every year, I think. Um, this Oregon defense will challenge them, especially in the secondary. I also was looking through Justin Fields' numbers last year, and don't get me wrong, his stats are pretty incredible. But he did struggle in a couple of big games. Uh, he had two picks in that last game of the season against Clemson in the college football playoff semifinal. Um, he was also 12 for 22 for 167 yards against Wisconsin in a close game last year during the regular season. Um, but I do think you have to be aware of the fact that Oregon is going to have to replace its own quarterback, and it's going to be a quarterback – more than likely, obviously one that's never started a game for Oregon, but potentially one that's never started uh, very many college games, at least when the season starts, and this is the second game of the season. So uh, I think 
I think it's pretty safe to say that this is going to be a game that Oregon can compete for. I don't know if Matt disagrees, but expecting to win probably feels a lot right now. But at the same time, these are probably going to both be teams both ranked inside the top ten nationally. Oregon will have a home field advantage, and I'm putting that in quotations because we don't really know what that advantage is going to look like, and maybe that's why it's going to be difficult for Oregon to win. But do you agree, Matt, in terms of you think this game can be competitive, and, and do you disagree that it seems unlikely Oregon can win? Well, I adamantly disagree that no one is giving Oregon a shot to stay within two touchdowns. And no offense to Wendy, I'm not trying to be calling you out, but uh, a lot of betting lines are are calling this a, a game that's a, a field goal game, a touchdown game, if that. Um, Fox bet, I know it's, it's not the most popular one out there, um, but they recently, about six weeks ago, updated their Six, seven weeks ago, you know, released some betting lines and Ohio State is in their eyes just a two and a half point favorite on the road out of Oregon. And you, you, you say, okay, home field advantage is three points. So at Ohio State, Oregon would only be a five and a half point underdog. So less than a touchdown underdog if this game was even played on the road, uh, according to Fox bet. And there's other lines out there and they're very all, you know, they're all similar to, to that line of two and a half, three and a half. Um, I, I did think I, I did see a four, uh, but I, maybe the if you want to take away the betting numbers and just look at what analysts are saying, then then you could maybe sell me a little bit better on the fact that people are saying maybe Oregon won't stay within two touchdowns. But I, I, even then, I'm not on board with that. I, I think if this game is played with or without fans in Austin Stadium, um, I. Today I would pick Ohio State to win, but I wouldn't Agreed. pick I wouldn't pick Ohio State to to win by two touchdowns. I wouldn't pick Ohio State to win by thirteen points. Um, I I would probably say Oregon loses by a touchdown or or, or fewer um, because keep in mind their defense is going to be one of the best defenses in the country in, in college football next season and they are absolutely stacked and Ohio State has to reload at multiple positions. Yes, they bring back Justin Fields uh, at the quarterback position, but everywhere else on offense, that that group has to reload at, at basically every level. And if, if you gave me 14 points, I, I'm taking Oregon every single day twice on Sunday because I'm that confident that they that they keep this game within 10, probably closer to to, to seven points uh, in this football game, at least where I'm I'm standing right now. Let's like expand this talk a little bit because I feel like we haven't really addressed this. What would be a reason, and I'll, I'll probably start with my own, but what would be a reason for why Oregon could win this game and maybe what would be a reason why the game would go the other way and not just the other way but that what Wendy said is correct and Oregon loses by more than two touchdowns. Um, I think Oregon can win this game because of its defense and I, it's part of the reason I was pointing at Justin Fields' Kind of, I don't want to say lackluster performance because you look at his stats all season and they're pretty dang remarkable. And he's obviously a highly talented player. He's probably going to be drafted around the same range of where Herbert went this last year, if not a little bit higher. Um, and that's as a as a junior as opposed to a senior. Um, but he did struggle at times a little bit with some of these better defenses, especially to throw the football. And I look at what Oregon does really well defensively, and that's going to be get after the quarterback, and that's going to be able to defend the wide receivers. And I know Ohio State has a ton of talent at wide receiver, and that's the case every year. And they're going to have players drafted in the first round at that position in 2020 
one, I don't think there's much question. But I think if there's a, the game, yeah, I guess the storyline for how Oregon wins this one is the defense shuts it down. They don't allow field and, and that passing attack to beat them down the field. And offensively, whoever is that quarterback is able to manage things. We see a little bit of that explosive offense, which supposedly Cristobal has been saying regarding what Joe, Joe Moore has been doing, and that's why they win. On the flip side, I think the way this could get away from them is the defense just isn't quite there yet. And maybe the athletes on Ohio State are surprisingly that much better. And we know that there's a ton of talent in Ohio State. We see it in the draft. We see it in the recruiting rankings. No one's disagreeing with the fact that on paper, Ohio State has a more talented roster. If they're over to, if they're able to overwhelm Oregon's defense, which again, I think will be a very good defense. And again, this is why I think Oregon has a chance to win. But if Ohio State is able to win those battles consistently, I could see this game getting away because I think if it becomes a match score for score toward a situation, I think Oregon's offense, given the handicap at quarterback, given kind of what they're replacing on the offensive line, given the fact that we don't know how much preparation they're going to have before this to, to put in their offense, and I think that's another part of it, but that's how this game gets out of out of a reach, I would say, is the defense isn't quite there, and the offense um, has a hard time sticking with the, the Buckeyes. Do you agree with some of the, that matter? What are some yeah, thoughts I, on your I, part? I think Oregon wins this game because their defense is so good. And they, they make this like a, like a 24 to, to 17 type of a performance for Oregon. Yeah. And, you know, they hold Ohio State to under 20 points. And, uh, you know, look, Oregon's defense is absolutely loaded and their strengths kind of fit, at least on paper right now, in theory, what Ohio State's offensive strengths are going to be. So we're going to real, we're going to get a good idea of, who's the better, you know, defense or who's the better offense and, and get a true appreciation of how good they really are because I, I think Oregon's defense will be better than Ohio State's offense. Um, if that makes any kind of sense in, in, in 2020, but why Oregon would lose is because maybe Ohio State has equally as good or very similar to, uh, defense that Oregon has. And yeah, it, it's a game in which, hey, if, you can score 20 points, you're going to win for Oregon's offense, essentially. But what happens if they run up against a defense that holds them to 10 points? You know, and Ohio, and, and Ohio State scores 17, and, and you're like, wow, that's a really good job. Oregon did a fantastic performance against an Ohio State offense to hold them to 17 points. They should win this game because they've only got to score four times, and they're in. And yet they only score twice, a touchdown and a field goal, or they only score three Three field goals. Um, you know, I, I think Oregon's got to be able to score 21 or more points, and they've got to be able to hold Ohio State to two touchdowns or less. I think they could do that, um, but I I worry if if Ohio State's defense is as good, if not better than Oregon's, then that's how they're going to lose this game because they've got to be able to at least be respectable and at least get this game played in the mid to low twenties, because if it's played below the twenties, I, I don't, I don't think Oregon's offense is going to be able to muster enough to win this game. Unless, you know, what, what what's the popular saying? Special teams be special. If, if Oregon can get some just remarkable special teams performances, uh, th- that's, you know, I, I don't see this game going on Oregon's way. If it's, it's kind of that sweet spot. Like I don't trust Oregon's offense to win a shootout. And I don't, you know, and I also think if this game's played in the teens, that's probably not good for Oregon either. 
we'll leave that discussion right there. Obviously, we'll have a lot of opportunity to talk Ducks and Buckeyes going forward. Um, second question, here's where we start getting a little bit of that recruiting fever. From at Dweather5, is there a must have recruit in this 2020 class? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. He put must in all caps, which is why I add a little extra emphasis to it. Matt, I know we've run through a lot of like top guys and who who are some of the top prospects, and we're going to have a little bit more of that opportunity as the show progresses once again. But do you feel like there can you can you signal in on one guy who is the must have recruit, or yes. does that not really exist? All right, you can't Tro- go ahead. Troy Franklin, without a doubt, it's Troy Franklin because he's a a four star receiver, borderline five star recruit in the twenty four seven Sports composite, just three or four spots away from getting to that point. Um. He fits a need for the Oregon offense from a receiver perspective. He's six foot two, 175 pounds, real tall, real lanky receiver. A guy that quite honestly, there's not a lot of body types similar to him, um, on the roster right now. And this is a player that Oregon quite honestly is the leader for. And he, there's going to be, you know, if they miss on Troy Franklin, that's going to be a big, hurt because they've gone so far through this cycle kind of as the perceived leader of in the clubhouse. Every big school wants him. And we've talked a lot about on this show, Eric, like go watch Ohio State's receivers. Go watch LSU's receivers. Go watch Alabama's receivers, um, you know, Clemson's receivers, and look at them and compare them to Oregon's, and you'll see a program that's drastically different. And I think you go look at Troy Franklin's scholarship offer list and look at these schools that have offered him at receiver. Alabama, LSU, USC, ASU, Auburn, Florida, Miami, Oklahoma. I mean, these are all schools that have produced first-round draft picks. Clemson has offered, I believe. Oh, no, Clemson has not offered. Uh, but those are all schools that have offered Troy Franklin – that have all recently produced first round or multiple first round receivers the last three or four seasons that, you know, significantly have a different looking receiving core than Oregon's does. And the Ducks are in a position to land Franklin and it would be a, a, a pretty big gut punch if whenever signing day happens and Franklin signs with a Washington or a USC, an LSU, an Alabama or an Arizona State. Over Oregon, it, it would it would sting pretty big because he's in your region, he is he fills a position of need, and you've been in first place with him. You know he's not come out and said Oregon is his favorite, but if you talk to our insiders, if you talk to the twenty four seven sports insiders from a regional or from a national perspective, everyone kind of agrees that Franklin right now leans towards Oregon and has leaned towards Oregon for a while. And if he were to go to some other school, that would sting in a pretty big way because he feels so many, so much, uh, has so many check boxes checked for him for Oregon's offensive needs. I wasn't necessarily going to share my pick, but that would have been who I said, Matt. I, uh, I agree about Franklin for a lot of what you said in terms of the position, the talent, the fact that Oregon really needs to get some big time receivers to, to build out this offense going forward. Um, I think a lot of reasons to, to, to say that he is that must-have guy in this class. And if it's not Franklin, to me, it's going to be another wide receiver. Um, they need to have an elite, talented kid who maybe he's not your go-to receiver 
in 2021 when he enrolls, but within a year or two, he takes that on and you have your future star at that position because I don't want to say that doesn't exist on the roster because a lot of the players that we think uh, have huge upside are, are going into their sophomore years or junior years or maybe they redshirted and we think there's talent there, but there's, there, there still needs to be somebody who you can say by 2023, 2024 possibly that that's going to be kind of your go-to guy and getting somebody in this class, I, I agree, that's really important because I don't know if that exists that far down the line. Third question, and last one before the break, similar question here from Duck Greatness. Coach Cristobal said they are fishing for the big fish. What recruit will be the biggest fish for the 2021 class? Hashtag odds and audibles. I don't know, Matt, if this is too similar, but uh, can you differentiate between a must-have and then maybe who the biggest and highest rated recruit would be for Oregon potentially in this class? Is there a yeah, differentiation? I, I, I think Franklin's probably the must-have. Uh, biggest fish? There's a couple names that are out there. I mean, I, I think Emeka Egbuka, the number one receiver in the country from Washington, would be an even bigger get than Troy Franklin. I just think Emeka is leaning towards Ohio State, and then if he's not going to go to Ohio State, probably uh, Washington, uh, the home state school, would be difficult to beat out. Clemson and LSU would also be difficult. Um, but, you know, Oregon, Oregon is in his final group right now, and – you know, they have a longstanding relationship with Emeka. Um, he's a top 10 player in the country. Uh, you know, so it, it wouldn't necessarily be the biggest shock in the world if he committed to Oregon. It still would be a shock, but it wouldn't be, uh, you know, blow you out of the water type of a commitment. Um, Corey Foreman's the number one ranked recruit in the country. Defensive end. I mean, the, he's got Oregon in his top group. He's gonna officially visit Oregon. Uh, during the fall, if, if he doesn't make a verbal commitment before the country opens up, um, I do think he leans probably more towards USC. But we have said on the show, and I've said it a couple times, that you know it, it, there's kind of two battles being waged right now. It's the West Coast against the SEC, the East Coast schools. Uh, can they can the West Coast schools convince Foreman to stay out on the West Coast, and then it becomes a battle between three schools: Oregon versus USC versus Washington. Uh, so you, you hope that those three schools, if you're an Oregon fan, can kind of work together on a pitch while, while they're not meeting together and, and discussing strategy, but you would think all three of them are pitching stay closer to home, and if they all three could make a, a pretty big impact on the importance of that and playing football out on the West Coast, because it is from uh, L.A., that could help all three schools, and then it becomes, well, which which is the best program for him? He's probably leaning towards USC, kind of has gone to a high school that's produced some USC players in the past, but Oregon is a player here, a major one. He would be the biggest fish possible just because he's the number one recruit in the country. And I would probably say Oregon has a better chance getting Corey Foreman than they do Emeka Ibuka. All right, that's going to be the first half of this show. Let's take a quick break. You are listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. 
Com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. Welcome back to the Austin Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Bramer. Scopel is with me as always. Three episodes, three questions in, three episodes. Three more questions into the mailbag, three more to go. Let's knock these ones out. This is following up similar topic, and, and again, there's, there's a little bit of redundancy, but I think it's fun to talk about kind of best pick, you know, best possible recruiting outcomes. So here's another one on that same line from at Nat Fod. If you could pick three five-star or four-star recruits that are interested in Oregon to commit and eventually sign, who would they be? For the purpose of this question, assume, assume no other four-star or five-star guys take Oregon for the rest of the class after those three. Hashtag Otson Audibles. So we're now going down from the most, the must-have recruit to the top dog, the big fish recruit to three or four, I guess, sorry, let's focus on Nat's question here. Three, four or five-star recruits who Oregon could end up with. Um, I'm going to just throw mine out here, Matt. Real quick, can, real quick. I want to clarify something. Please do. Are, are we saying that let's say they sign five-star defensive tackle Corey Foreman or defensive lineman Corey Foreman, they will not sign any other player at that position? Or are they only getting three five-stars and no other four or five-star players the rest of the way? My understanding is it's the latter. Is it's uh, assume no other four-star or five-star guys pick Oregon for the rest of the class after those wow, three. So you're so, signing like three five-star or four-star guys and then a bunch of three-stars. It's a weird. I think I think his concept was that we were from like a positional thing, not to think about them overlapping with other top talent. Um, but sure. yeah, it is so much short-sighted in terms of like I think we both feel pretty confident Oregon's going to sign more than three, four or five star recruits right, right. from here. Um, I like this because it's if you could pick your three best players possible, and those you know, and then everybody else is significantly lower down. Who would you take? That's the concept here, and uh, I, I didn't go top top recruits, but I addressed three positions that I, if, if I guess if I was using a position on a four or five star recruit, I would use it on wide receiver, offensive line, and defensive line. That's where I kind of settled in. Um, I think you look at Oregon as a class, and they've already got their quarterback. You look at the tight end position; it's hard. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe I made an error there. Maybe a tight end probably needs, should be included in this, but I didn't for the sake of what I put together. Um, and then I look at the defense of the defense and they just added two five-star linebackers last cycle. They've added a ton of talent in the secondary. Um, and I think the defense as a whole is pretty healthy. So the three I landed on were Troy Franklin, who we mentioned earlier at wide receiver, um, for the reasons we discussed, uh, Kingsley Silmatia on the offensive line because I just get a feeling that he's probably going to end up at Oregon and he's a big time tackle prospect. Could be. Um, the player that replaces Penny Sewell as the blindsided Oregon um, a couple years down the line. And then on the defensive side, at the defensive line position, a player we've already mentioned, Corey Foreman, just because if you're going to go big fish, why not go for the biggest fish out there? And, and I think he's that. So those are the three four- or five-star recruits I would choose Oregon to sign if they could not sign any more after that. Matt, a little overlap here, or where did you land on this one? Yeah, we got a little little bit of overlap. I have – I have uh... Troy Franklin at the receiver position, just like you. 
very self-explanatory for that one. Corey Foreman, the defensive end, um, he's the number one player in the country, and you yeah. you can sign him, and you have a legitimate chance at signing him. You do that every single day, and you worry about the ramifications later. Um, strong side defensive end could basically be the ultimate replacement uh, for Kayvon Thibodeau. Uh, they'd play one season potentially together, and then you'd get two years with Corey Foreman replacing Kayvon Thibodeau. And then I here's if if we want to go crazy, Oregon is in the top eight or top ten for five star defensive tackle Mason Smith. Oh, I love it. And Oregon also, and Mason Smith and, and Corey Foreman are talking about wanting to play together in college. Mason Smith is also talking about how all he's known in his life is the state of Louisiana and that he wants to get out and see something new. Well, look, Oregon is something completely new compared <laughs> to Louisiana. I mean, there's, there is no comparison outside of the fact that, uh, we are Americans and we both play college football in, in our respected states. Uh, very different, you know, very, very different environments, uh, down in, in LSU, at, 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 uh, the Bayou and, um, up in the Pacific Northwest. So if we want to get crazy, I will do Mason Smith as my third because five star defensive tackle, 20th player in the, in the country, second best defensive tackle in, in the nation, the top player in, in the state of Louisiana. And we've talked about this on the show a couple year a couple weeks ago of how the staff needs to go out and find uh some defensive tackle prospects because Jordan Scott's a senior in twenty twenty and then Popo Omave will be a senior in twenty twenty one and you kinda don't really know what's behind that. And you and I have said it before, we think there's some talent there. We think we think there's some guys that are gonna potentially step into that mix, but uh replacing Jordan Scott and eventually Popo Omave with five star, six foot five, 320 pound defensive tackle Mason Smith feels like uh, a win that far exceeds maybe the, even the addition of Kayvon Thibodeau because now all of a sudden you're upgrading the middle of your defensive line and you've added an elite defensive end that's very similar to Kayvon Thibodeau. Uh, Oregon's defense could be pretty special. You know, I just, we've, I've started amping up our film review se- section of this and our colleague Kevin Wade sent me like a list of the Oregon's offers over the last couple of weeks and Smith I think was the second or third one I got to and his, the caliber of recruit he is compared to Rancho. I was looking at like 2022 three-star defensive backs and you know, lesser regarded 2021 players, but the caliber of recruit that Smith is compared to some of the players I've looked at is pretty astounding. He is, the real deal. And whoever gets him, again, when he grows up in Louisiana, it's hard to pull a recruit like that out of his home state. But if somehow Oregon is able to get a player like that, and maybe they pair him with a Corey Foreman, and now we're talking kind of cuckoo talk, but maybe not, because Oregon has exceeded expectations in the recruiting department now for a couple of cycles. But if somehow that came together, boy, that would be some kind of victory, because Smith is, and you've said it, and, and Six foot five, three hundred twenty pounds as a junior in high school, um, and the way he moves and his athletic traits, that kid could could probably play on Sundays sooner than later. Probably wouldn't even need to use the full three years just from a physical perspective. Obviously, there's a lot more to learn, but he is a highly talented player and somebody to certainly keep an eye on. And if yeah, I, I probably wish I would have included him on my list too because I think if if you're talking about the best case scenario and you can only pick a couple of players. If you can come up with a situation where Mason Smith 
ends up at Oregon and you pair him with a Corey Foreman for a couple of seasons, that would be something like unlike Oregon has ever had. And yes. maybe that's what starts that kind of pipeline to that part of the country um, where it's really difficult to pull recruits. It could it could literally be like pairing – and this feels very hot takeish because he's only played one year, but it feels like p- pairing Haloti Nada with Kayvon Thibodeau at the same time. <laughs> yeah, something like that. It's not that far off. <laughs> uh, but like that's just like that, that'd be scary. Or if you want to, you know, Dion Jordan and and Haloti Nada playing together at the same time for three seasons of football, like that just we've never seen that before out of Oregon. Yeah, the closest thing maybe is that DeForest Buckner Eric Armstead combination. But those guys were such different body types than than what we're talking about right now with these. The edge type of presence you'd have in a foreman who's probably 6'5", 285 when he's playing, and the interior size of a Smith who'd be maybe 6'5", 330. I don't know. I mean, how much weight does he actually need to put on to play at high level? Maybe he cuts weight, but yeah, I mean, maybe it, different body types, but certainly exciting to watch. Looking at the scouting reports on 24-7 Sports and their player comps, um, Corey Foreman compares to Cameron Jordan of the New Orleans Saints. And then Mason Smith compares to Eddie Goldman of the Chicago Bears, two of the better defensive players at their respected positions in the NFL. Yeah. So if that comes together, oof, that's something <laughs> special. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll, and, if, and if that does come together, we'll have to reflect back on this podcast that we recorded in mid-May and, uh, and really pat ourselves These would not be hot takes. They'd be ice in the veins. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's move on from some recruiting. we got a couple more. Uh, football and, and a little bit of basketball at the end here from at B Murph. Are you more excited to watch the pair of Justin Flo and Noah Sewell or the pair of Mikhail Wright and Dante Manning play together? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. I think this is a fun one because what you're talking about here are the two highest rated linebacker recruits to ever sign at Oregon and the two highest rated defensive back recruits to ever sign with Oregon who just so happen to have done so over the course of two cycles. And I think once again, just putting that out there and the significance of that is is massive in terms of what they're doing on the field and from a recruiting perspective of getting these type of talents together. Um, I think, interesting question, I think if we're thinking right away, it's got to be Flo and Sewell because there's a possibility that one or maybe both of those guys force themselves into the starting lineup as true freshmen. I think Flo feels one of those players is probably going to replace Troy Dye. I think I, we both feel pretty confident in saying it's probably going to be either Justin Flo or Noah Sewell at some point in the season taking up that torch and being that player to replace Troy Dye. Um, so the immediate impact, I think, would be felt more with those two. But, like, long-term? I don't know if long-term they're better, but, like, Dante Manning or, yeah, Dante Manning and Mikhail Wright long-term is really exciting. Um, we know how good Oregon is secondary is right now, but we're talking about recruits that are even maybe one level below what Wright and Manning are. I mean, Manning's the only five-star defensive back Oregon has signed, and, and Mikhail Wright's right there on the verge of being one of those. So um, I think short-term, short, short term it's pretty easy flow and Sue. I think long-term, I don't necessarily know if I'm fully convinced of this, but I think long-term you could make a pretty strong argument in terms of Mikhail Wright and Dante Manning in terms of that could be your starting core and your secondary for years to come as well, um, and it could have huge impacts on Oregon's defense. This is difficult because... Both groups are really, really talented, and I'm, as a no slight to the DBs of Dante Manning and Mikhail Wright, we've seen elite combinations of cornerbacks time and time and time again at Oregon. I mean, shoot, we, we're seeing it right now with Thomas Graham 
and Diomede Lenore. We we saw it with, with Walter Thurman and Jarius Bird. We we saw it um, before that with Rashad Bowman and Steve Smith, and we saw it with um, the Ifo, 2000. Ifo and Troy. Yeah, Ifo and Troy, and we saw it with Dylan Mitchell and and Ifo. Um, like uh, there's there's been elite elite DBs at Oregon before. I don't know if Oregon has had two linebackers at the same time where you say not only are they maybe the you know two of the four best in their conference, they're maybe the t- two of the ten best in the entire country. And while they've not played a single down yet, and that's very you know, laxed commenting and projecting out there for Flo and for Sewell, they were the number one and number two linebackers in the country for a reason. And if they live up to their expectations, that's the caliber of player you're going to be getting. And getting three or four years of them playing together at the same time, we've never seen that before for Oregon. So I'll take that one just because it's something we've never seen play out. We've seen... A ton of really good linebackers play at Oregon. A ton. But we've yet to see two first-round caliber linebackers play in the same season start together at Oregon. Final question from at Drew Goley. What one play in your time covering men's basketball and football defines either program, positively or negatively? For me, it's the missed... DAT and that's DeAnthony Thomas block against Stanford slash Bell's missed rebounds and and a positive would be and he was referring to Jordan Bell missing rebounds in North Carolina around the uh, final four there and positive would be Masoli trucking the OSU defender in 2009 slash Dorsey with the last three against Duke um, that was Dylan Brooks it was Dylan Brooks and I was about to correct that as well because I was thinking about Dorsey hit some big shots in that tournament and there's no question about it but Dylan Brooks is the one who hit the long one, and as we recall, Coach K had some some words after the game from. I, I don't know if I want to say program defining, but I wanted to list a couple of positive and negatives I thought of that I've covered in person. Um, the reason I say I don't know about program defining is like I don't know if Jordan Bell missing a rebound defines the program. I don't know if DeAnthony Thomas missing a block defines the program, and I don't know if Jeremiah Masoli running over somebody or Dylan Brooks hitting a game winner or something defines a program one way or the other. I think the program over time defines itself, so I don't know if it's fair to really put it into one play. But And maybe Matt's done something different, and I'll throw it to him in a second. He'll have a better explanation. But the plays I thought of in terms of positive plays that, that really stood out to me that I've covered, first was Dylan Brooks' buzzer beater against UCLA. Um, that was certainly one of the more memorable plays I can think of from a positive perspective. The way that that arena just leapt to enthusiasm, um, the unexpectedness of that moment. It felt like UCLA was going to upset Oregon, even though Oregon had a great team, obviously, that year. And then another one that's in the positive for me, actually a couple more I wrote down, uh, the C.J. Verdell touchdown against Washington. Really easy to stand out in terms of something that was, you know, extremely memorable and, and a really positive play in terms of ending a short drought against Washington and doing so in dramatic fashion. There's also the fact that and Kayvon Thibodeau's there, and maybe that had a role in his recruitment. Uh, and then another one I thought of that I covered in person was Mariota hitting Josh Huff for the game winner in that Civil War, um, and that's now been at least seven or eight years. But that play, 
uh, and that drive will always be something I remember. A couple of bad plays I thought of here, and, and unfortunately there are a fair amount of these. Um, the Peyton Pritchard fouling Jalen Noel at the around the buzzer from three um, oh, a couple of years ago. That one's still I don't. And then shortly after, Chris Smith making a layup to force overtime against Oregon. Oregon ends up losing. <laughs> That game in overtime after they led by like 13 points with a minute and a half to play or something. Yeah, you're talking about UCLA. Yeah, UCLA. These are both the same year, 2018. Those ones are always going to sit there. Um, obviously, the Jordan Bell one is a great one in terms of what would have happened if he crowd rebound. Maybe they get a shot up to, to, to play in the national championship game against Gonzaga. Um, and then a bad one for football, and this is probably one that a lot of people remember. It's later on in that DeAnthony Thomas missed block was that Zacherts touchdown in overtime to beat Oregon, which... I still don't know if that was a touchdown or not. I kind of don't think it was, um, but that one certainly is defining. And, and then, of course, I didn't cover this one, but I was at the game. The, the Mike, you know, was a dire down play against Auburn a handful of years ago. And in fact, I guess I should say this last year, um, a game that I did cover would, would certainly be that final play against Auburn. That there's been a, a number enough bad ones that I'm as I'm running through this that I'm, I'm reminded of them. But yeah, certainly the game in Dallas this year ended in a way that was uh, pretty darn memorable too, uh, Matt. Anything I missed there that you have? And, and I guess, do you think you can say a single play defines a program? I kind of had a hard time doing that. Yeah, I, I have a hard time saying one predict, you know, one particular play defines things. But moments, if you want to give me moments or, or games from a football standpoint, I, I might look back at 2011 when this was, Oregon opens the season at LSU and they get, they get blasted 40 to 27. Uh, Oregon just, it, it was a difficult game to, to cover, but then they rip off nine straight wins. They go down to Stanford in, in early November and destroy the Cardinal who at the time were number four in the country. They win that one 53 to 30 and Oregon goes into the, the next week against the USC team at home. I think game day is there. The Ducks are fourth in the co- in the country. They have an opportunity to to win out in a very manageable schedule the rest of the way to get back into the basically the college football playoff or not the playoff, but make the championship game again. Right. And they have a game in which things are going back and forth with the Trojans and. All of a sudden, US, USC scores a late touchdown, I believe. They go up by three points, and Oregon has an opportunity to kick a, a, a game-tying field goal with time, you know, with time going off the clock, and it misses. And like LeBron James is there, oh, right. ton of other NBA superstars are at this game. It, it was such a huge game, and then it was just like a gut punch. It's just ugh. And you were like, what in the world happened? How did this team lose to a Lane Kiffin team that was, they weren't playing for anything. And the Trojans finished nine and two on the year, or I think 10 and two on the year. Uh, and Oregon ended up going to the Rose Bowl and, and they win the Rose Bowl, but that was a team that could have and should have been in the national championship game and they, and they didn't. Um, I think DeAnthony Thomas not blocking. Uh, for Marcus Mariota, the next season at home against Stanford is a big one because if they win that game, they play in the national championship game and they smoke Notre Dame, uh, just like Notre Dame was smoked by Alabama, but Oregon wouldn't have allowed Alabama to be in there. 
Uh, Notre Dame was undefeated, so you know it would have been just an absolute buck kicking, and Oregon could have had a national championship in in their books. Um, from a positive standpoint, I, I think you're right. The Washington game two years ago really stands out. Uh, C.J. Verdell's walk-off touchdown. You know, think about all the significance of that. A couple weeks earlier, he's you know getting death threats from overzealous fans because he fumbled against Stanford, and then he wins the game on a running play against their arch rival, Washington, a month later. Uh, pretty cool redemption story there, and kind of kicked the jump start for the Mario Cristobal momentum train, if you will, mm-hmm. from an Oregon football perspective to where they are now. I, I, I think the Rose Bowl, the 2020 season, is a pretty defining moment for Oregon football. Um one that I think growing up was a real big defining one was the 2001 Fiesta Bowl, or I should say the 2002 Fiesta Bowl when they beat Colorado. Yeah. Because that felt like that was a game in where it was kind of cemented, like Oregon is one of the best teams in the country. We all kind of thought they were, but they really hadn't proven it yet on a big stage against an, uh, a well-respected opponent, and that's what they did in that game, and they destroyed Colorado. Um, from a basketball standpoint, I, I'll never forget the, just the images that are going to be burned into my, my brain from being in Kansas City when Oregon beat Kansas in the Elite Eight to advance to the Final Four. Just the, the faces of, of the coaching staff, the faces of the players, the faces of the emotions of the administration at Oregon. I, that was a breakthrough moment and, a team that I think Oregon will reap the benefits from for years to come. I mean, think about that team has what five or six NBA players on it. You know, Chris Boucher is in the NBA. Dylan Brooks is in the NBA. Jordan Bell is in the NBA. Um, Tyler Dorsey was in the NBA uh, before he got a lucrative contract overseas. Uh, but he, he was playing in the NBA and then Peyton Pritchard, uh, will be drafted and will play in the NBA this upcoming season. That's five. And, and then you, you throw in the fact that Casey Benson is playing over in Europe. Dylan Ennis is playing over in Europe. You know, that team was absolutely loaded and is gonna, I, Oregon is gonna reap the benefits of that program for years to come. So, um, and then year two that you mentioned two years ago of, of the Washington and UCLA losses. They were up double digits at UCLA again later that year, uh, down at UCLA. Um, uh, 2018, 2019—the excuse me, the 2017-2018 team that didn't make the NCAA tournament. They had the talent to make the tournament. They had, they had the talent to make a Sweet 16 run with the right setup, and they just never clicked, and they didn't make the tournament. And that's kind of an ultimate what if, you know, what if some guys came back to school? What if? So, you know, the guys clicked and just figured things out. And why did they not figure things out? No, there's certainly a lot of, of good ones here to, to choose from in terms of plays. And, and I would love it if we got more of these. And maybe this is something that we'll have to uh, throw up on the message board in terms of keeping this discussion going, because it is a good one. And I'm sure there are other plays that both of us, maybe one of us has forgotten um, that, that were really important and important. I don't, again, I don't think program defining is necessarily fair, but certainly memorable and, and that we'll always, uh, be able to re- remember going forward. And obviously the fact that we came up with these plays first off our brain, uh, just sort of speaks to the importance of those and the significance of those for those that were covering and at those games. So. I think another um, one real quick, another yeah, one from a basketball perspective, 
kind of set the tone early on in Dane Altman's era. And think about it, like the basketball team before Dane Altman showed up, the men's side, they had very limited success. Ernie Kent took them to two Elite Eights. He also took them to two other runs in the NCAA tournament, but they were both first round first no, three other runs in the NCAA tournament. They were all, you know, one and done. So they they went and played one game and were out. You know, they they didn't have a ton of postseason success where now it's kind of expected that not only does Oregon make the tournament, but they at least win a game in the NCAA tournament. They're at least there for the round of 32, and more often than not, they're there for the Sweet 16. Um, his first season, they beat Creighton mm-hmm. to win the CBI, and one of the first things that Dane Altman says after that, fans storm the court, they're 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 chanting because they won a championship. Who cares how low in the pecking order of postseason tournaments it really is? They're just excited that they won a championship. And his one of the first things he said was. We are never playing in this ever again. The program is better than this, and we will get there. And <laughs> I mean, think about that. That's what he says. I mean, he, he he was thankful that they won. He was happy that they won. The moments for the seniors and and the young guys to get the you know the, the growth of playing in a postseason tournament. But he said the expectations at Oregon were going to be significantly higher, and that they were going to demand significantly more from Oregon moving forward, and that. Winning the CBI was not acceptable and was not something that moving forward would, would be something the program would, would celebrate. Maybe that right there is your program defining play. Yeah. And that's, that's, maybe that's what it is. Yeah, that's a good one. And I, I think that's one that's, I didn't cover that one. I think I was still in school at the time, but that's, yeah, that kind of got it all started for, for Allman in that program. It's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you guys for, for checking out the podcast. If you are a VIP member of duckterritory.com, go to the message board and up the top, there is a thread pinned up by Kevin. Subscribe to Duck Territory text alerts and be the first in the know. This is a new platform where we've redone our, our text messaging system and this is an opportunity for you guys to get the news directly to your phones right when it happens. We don't send out text messages unless it's breaking news. And this is the best way to make sure that you know of breaking news instantly as it happens. And there's going to be a step-by-step way of how you can go in and and set things up there. So make sure if you are a member of DuckTerritory.com to do that. If you're not a member, you can join for as low as $1 for your first month. Can't beat that price. Highly encourage you guys to check that out as well. So for Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Prem, thank you for listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Adios, amigos. Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good. Take a deep breath. You needed a break. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. So, yes, you can literally stream a stream. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation.